You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as we do every Sunday, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word using uh, your own Bible, a Black Pew Bible, or perhaps even on your phone or other device, our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. If you were not here last week, uh, you need to know that we have begun a new preaching series through the book of Revelation, which will take us quite a while as we work our way through these verses. But we are delighted to be able to spend this season in our church exalting Jesus Christ, and that's our intention this morning. Uh, You know, the world around us, especially, especially in our American culture, knows today, October 31st, as Halloween. But as a church who loves the truth, loves the truth of God's word, and loves the local church, we know October 31st to be Reformation Day. This is a day that churches like ours celebrate the incredible work of God during a period of church history known as the Protestant Reformation. That's why we are known to be Protestant, because at this time, some faithful Christian leaders stood up against what at that time was a corrupt Catholic church and protested for the truth. And so we are grateful for that period in church history and all that it has done for us. However, we're not only grateful for it because it is a moment in time or a season in history, but we're grateful for it because we know in our church and churches like ours, because of our ongoing need for change, that we are, as the Latin says, semper reformanda, always reforming. We're always changing and growing. We're always seeking to be more pure before our God, that we could worship Him and exalt Him more and more. And so this morning, we want to consider that from this text in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Just as in the Reformation, the ultimate concern of the day for those like Martin Luther, who nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, or John Calvin, or many of the other reformers of the day... Our ultimate concern and focus ought to be, and I hope that it continues to be as a church down through the decades, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of his truth. That's an important word, and I'd actually like to commend to you uh, a practice that you might take up. It may sound really elementary, but it is uh, an important practice in the Christian life, and that is that we might just every now and then slow down. And consider just one small truth, maybe even just one word. And I would even ask you this week that you would consider this one word, the word supreme. That's a word sometimes we kind of throw around about something being supreme. But when we use it in in reference to Jesus, we mean that he is ultimate. He is the highest. It would do our souls good even just to take some time this week and sit alone before God and even just think for a while about his supremacy. What does that mean for Jesus Christ to be ever supreme? That word is an important one. It comes from another word, the Latin word super, which means above, and then becomes the word supremus, which means highest. This is God's superlative. This is the superlative of Jesus Christ. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that when I was a senior in high school, I was voted in the senior superlatives 
for prettiest eyes. <laughs> That's what everybody thought about me when they looked at me. What should everybody think about God when they look at God? Supreme. That is his superlative. We want to exalt Jesus Christ as the supreme king who is the king of supreme love, and therefore he deserves supreme glory. That's what I want you to see this morning as we exalt our king as supreme. I want you to see first as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus is supreme king. It's interesting to put those two words together. You would think that king would be enough, but we want to make it evident. We want to make it emphatic like the Bible does that Jesus is not just a king. He's not one of many kings. He is the supreme king. That's why the Bible so frequently tells us, and we, we hear this often, um, especially this coming time of year, the Christmas season, that he is king of kings. And he is Lord of Lords. Jesus is supreme king. Why is it so important that we grasp in our hearts what seems to be such simple truth? Why is it so important in churches like ours that we make a big deal out of theology, out of our, our study and knowledge of God? Well, it's because the Bible clearly tells us that theology is our life. It is your life. Your theology, your study of God, your view of God, unlike anything else, shapes everything about you. It shapes the way you think. It shapes the things that you want. It shapes your relationships of all kinds. Theology is of paramount importance. The great pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer was quoted saying this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you ever thought about that before? The most important thing about you, the most important thing about me is what comes into our minds when we think about God. Well, then we need to ask the question, what does God want us to know and to think about him? This morning we see that he wants us to know and he wants us to think that he is supreme. In fact, he has stamped his ultimate supremacy on every page of Scripture he has even stamped the idea of supremacy on every human heart. That is why you and I and everyone we know have this affinity. We have this, this urge, this desire, this drawing to the idea of being supreme. It's put on display for us very clearly in American culture in that it seems as though everyone in every profession, in every field, in every corner is striving to be supreme. And yet what we know in all of that, when we measure any kind of human creaturely supremacy against the true supremacy of God, 
it falls woefully, woefully short. It is a bankrupt kind of supremacy that much of our world falls into when Jesus Christ is the ultimate supreme. As I get further along into my 40s, it's going to happen more and more as I talk like the old guy when I say things like, some of you here have never heard of Diana Ross and the Supremes. Some of you have. I grew up in a family that had eclectic appreciation for music, listened to all kinds of of different kinds of music, even Diana Ross and the Supremes in the 60s and 70s. They were sort of the the counterpart to a a men's group, uh, also with an interesting name, the Temptations. And when I thought about those two names, in particular that of Diana Ross and the Supremes, it occurs to me, how bold, how bold do you have to be to name yourself the Supremes? At this time, they had not been supreme. They did not become supreme. They never would be supreme. And yet that is an illustration for all of us of what the human heart longs for. We long to be supreme. We'll even name ourselves supreme knowing that we are not because we are all wannabes. We're all wannabes of feigned supremacy. It's the awe and attraction of supremacy that is written in our hearts. And I believe that God has done that only to show the stark contrast between our feigned supremacy and his ultimate supremacy, which is so key to the Christian life. That's why I'm delighted for us to look at this passage this morning, because there are so many confusing things in the book of Revelation, and we will get to those. But this morning, it is quite clear that Jesus Christ is supreme. It's laid out for us in just a few verses that show us his supremacy. And so that's why I want us to see first that Jesus is supreme king, starting in verse 4. We learn here, what we know about the book of Revelation is that it was a letter and it was a letter that was written as a circular letter so that it would go around to different places. It would be read from church to church to church and then it would be mailed on to the next church. And that's why in verse four, John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. There were more churches than just seven, but these for some reason were those that were selected to be recipients of this important letter. And John cuts right to the chase at the heart of the Christian life, at the heart of everything that they are intending to gain, what he has envisioned for them, what God is delivering to them by his supremacy. Hear these words again, grace to you and peace. In a world that is full of injustice, a world that is full of abuse and trouble and sin and war, John brings to their minds, to their hearts yet again what Jesus Christ brings into the world, and that is grace and peace. To the seven churches that are in Asia, Asia, grace to you and peace from him. And then we have this wonderful uh, little bit of scripture that puts on such display for being so small, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of God who sent Jesus into the world as the Redeemer. Listen to what he says right from the beginning, exalting Jesus Christ as supreme, as the giver of grace and peace. He says this, who is, who was, 
and who is to come. It's an incredible picture of the Trinity laid out for us in God's supremacy as we think about even who is this grace and peace that has come to us through the gospel has come from him who is. It's an important play upon the covenant name of God among his people in the Old Testament, Yahweh, which means I am. He refers to him even here. God the Father, Yahweh, has given you grace and peace. He is the one who is. And even now at this time, as they are awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ, they know that the Holy Spirit has been sent to them, the second person of the Trinity, to lead them into all truth, to comfort them and care for them as God who is now and always has been who was. The one who is always with them, who is always caring, who is always working God's will. And even then, he who is to come. Jesus himself, the one who will return for them. He goes on and he says, and from the seven spirits. Theologians have kind of gone around and around a bit about this. It's one of those confusing things in the book of Revelation, but most have, have agreed that by the context, it is yet another way to exalt the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pictured as the perfection of seven spirits who are ministering before the throne of God, present, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he becomes even clearer. He becomes even clearer so that we can gain this truth that we're talking about, which is that Jesus himself is supreme king. That's why he goes on in verse four and says, and from Jesus Christ. And now he is going to give a, an even more elaborate view of who is Jesus Christ as supreme. That he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is reminiscent of what we have read from the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians in this passage that stands out so, uh, so incredibly brilliant in our minds as a display of who Jesus Christ is, listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have supremacy, first place in everything. Jesus Christ here is being put on display for us to our comfort, to our hope, to the discomfort of those who do not know him as ultimate, that he is supreme. Notice the way that John puts this when he says that this grace and peace is from Jesus Christ, that he is the faithful witness. This is picturing Jesus Christ as a prophet, but not just any prophet, as the ultimate prophet the ultimate, supreme, faithful prophet, the one who witnesses to God's truth ultimately. And then he says that he is the firstborn from the dead. This 
idea, a first point, which you heard already from this passage in Colossians chapter one, simply means to be preeminent. It means to be first in line, that Jesus Christ is the first in line of the dead, of those who have, who have died and he who would come again, who was raised again, that he is the ultimate priest. He who could go to the cross, who could die, go to his grave, rise again triumphant, and then be the mediator of his people forevermore. He is the ultimate firstborn from the dead. And then finally, we read this, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That there is no king, there's no president, there's no prime minister, there's no political power, there's no, nothing or anyone that can compare to Jesus Christ, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We bring this right back around to the beginning of verse four, as we're reminded yet again, that coming from this ultimate king is what? As John writes to these believers in these churches, what is he telling them about this ultimate king? It's not the kind of king that you think of. It's not a king that comes and, and lays down all of his rules and all of his laws and lords it over people. But he is the king that brings grace and he brings peace to people who need it. That means this morning that as we want to apply this text to our lives, the first use of this text is simply this that we might restfully rejoice in our supreme king. I wonder how often that is a reality of your busy life and mine. We seem so busy, we are fraught with worries and frustrations and difficulties and hopes of things that we would like to accomplish, a constant evaluation of what's going right and what's going wrong. It's so easy for us to become enveloped in this little life that we fail to take a moment and simply restfully rejoice in the Supreme King. This, I believe, is what John wants believers to do. I think this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be able to rest in the grace and peace of our King who is ultimate and supreme. But the world is not only full of believers. The church is not only full of believers. This supremacy of Jesus Christ speaks a different word to those who are far from him, those who are apart from him, those who do not take him seriously. As our responsive reading put it this morning, unbelievers and hypocrites, those who would say one thing about him, but do something else about him. This reality of his supremacy calls for a different response. It calls for the unbelievers of the world. It calls even for the unbelievers, perhaps, who are in the church, that they would restlessly pursue him, that they would chase after him, that they would do everything in their power by his granting, by his grace, to know him because this king who is supreme, he is ultimate in grace and peace toward those who know him. 
He is ultimate in law and ultimate in war as the ultimate king who awaits those who will not bow to him. It is truly a double-edged sword. But for those who are in Christ, we can rest. We can rest and we can rejoice because our king is ultimate. Jesus, the supreme king whom we exalt this morning. There is a better way than rejecting him. There's a better way than running from him. And that way is to come into his supreme love. This is why, as Pastor Kevin said earlier, we, we are working so diligently during this first hour of Sunday mornings in ABF to outfit ourselves, equip ourselves, sharpen our tools and our skills to be able to be ambassadors for Christ in the world because we want many people to hear about him and to come into his supreme covenant love. That is the better way. It is the better way to love. It is the better way to live. It is the better way to be. And it is the only way to ultimately find rest and satisfaction for our souls. But the way that we do that is by seeing something else about our supreme king. That our supreme king is unlike the kings of the world. He is the king who works supreme love. If you're taking notes, that's the second truth that I'd like for you to see and make note of. Jesus is working his supreme love. Notice in the text, there is a shift from, from him to, to him. You see that in the middle of verse uh, five there. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Earlier, we were reading about from him who is and who was and who is to come from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him. Now we have this shift. It is not only about what has come from him, but what is going to him. And we'll get there in a moment. We know that that is ultimate supreme glory. But first, we need to understand why. Before you get to see or hear what is due him, you get to learn why it is to him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought in your life about why you should give him all glory? Why should you worship him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength? Why should you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God? Why should you try to inject into every relationship that you have, marriage, friendship, parenting, work, neighbor, whatever, the glory of God? Why should you have this this all-encompassing vision of glorifying God in your life? Why? Why should you give that to him? There are many reasons, but this morning you must see this. Because he has worked for you supreme love. I am convinced that in my life and in your life, the reason that I struggle so much as a Christian in those seasons where it really becomes a struggle, when my anxieties are high, when I'm worried, when I'm at odds with other people, when I'm frustrated with the way they're treating me, when I don't like the way that the world is going, it's because I have lost sight 
of this truth that Jesus Christ is working on my behalf, supreme love in all of those things. Therefore, this is a truth that we want to hold tight to. We must know what is the ultimate reason that we give him this ultimate good. It's not exactly what you would expect. When you think about kings and why kings uh, demand glory or why they think they should get glory, it's not for the reason that you would expect. I could tell you about one king whose name was Ivan. He claimed to be a devoted follower of Christian orthodoxy in his own kind of strange, specific manner. But in his life and in his kingship, he placed the most emphasis on defending the divine right of rulers to have ultimate power and lordship over people so that he would lord it over them. During this time of the Reformation in 1581, Ivan began to act out in these incredibly kingly ways for our world defending the divine right of kings to rule their people, even those closest to him. He beat his pregnant daughter-in-law for wearing immodest clothing. He caused in that beating a miscarriage. His second son, who was also named Ivan, upon learning of that, engaged in a heated argument with his father, which resulted in Ivan striking his son in the head with a pointed staff and fatally wounding him. He lived as this defending right of divine right of kings. He lived with eight wives in his life. And this word that was used to describe him, the Russian word grozny, was the word for terrible. Now that's the king of the earth. That's what kings in a fallen world are like. They're like Ivan the terrible. That's how they exercise their power. That's how they define defend their divine right by inspiring terror. And that's the reason they say, give me glory. But that's not the king of heaven. That's not the king that we know because our king does not work that way. Our king instead works supreme love. Look in this text at why supreme good is due to Jesus. To him, why? Who loves us. It's present tense. It's that word that you have heard before, agape love. It is to be dearly loved. He is right now dearly loving us. With all of his heart, he is dearly loving us. He's dearly loving us, having done something for us in the past, What the Bible says is released us from our sins. This is a finished work. It's in the past tense. It's something he's already done. To release us, it is to remove our chains, to remove the chains of sin and and the coming wrath of God that is hanging over us who are separated from him. What has he done? Because he loves us, he has released us from our sins. And he's done it by shedding his own blood. You see it right there in the text. If you want to know these truths and you want to build your theology, all you have to do is read the Bible. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, verse six, he made us into a kingdom of priests 
This concept of priest is an obvious one. It has access to God at its very heart and center. He's made us a king of people who have direct access to God because of his covenant love to serve and to worship and to bear witness as his priests, men and women, everyone who knows him. This is the incredible reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Why should you give him all glory? Why should you exalt and worship him this morning? It is because he has worked supreme love for you as your supreme king. Listen to some more of those words from the apostle Paul in Colossians chapter one, when he says this, for he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 19, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although... Although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Both John and the apostle Paul, I believe, are genuinely, genuinely impressed by these words. They love these words. These words are their heart. It's their heartbeat. It's the, it's the very lifeblood of their souls. And God wants this to be the lifeblood of our souls as well. When John says to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood and made us into a kingdom of priests to his God, I don't think he's doing this yada, yada, yada thing. It's not just going through the motions. He's not just stating objective facts. He's not just repeating a catechism. It is his heart. It is his life. It is his very hope. Is it yours? Is it mine? Is this your hope? Is this what makes your world go round? I think this is what God intends for us. He wants for this love to make our world go round. They're not just going through the motions and we don't want to either. So what ought we to do? Here's our second use this morning. Let's put this into practice in our lives. Let's meditate. We need to be meditating upon this love. We want to meditate our way to a greater appreciation of these rich gospel realities, which are yours. If, if they're yours. We want to meditate upon these incredible truths that are being presented to us in the word of God. This is the way for them to become more and more our lifeblood. But beware, 
Beware when you hear this. If you hear these words and over time notice that you have a take it or leave it mentality about Jesus Christ and his supreme love shown towards sinners like you, it ought to be an alarm. Alarm bells ought to be ringing if that is what you find in your heart. That when you hear this, take it or leave it. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it's great. Jesus, supreme king. Rather than it captivating our hearts. But if you want it to captivate your heart, then meditation is your key. Now, I know that that's not an easy thing for us. It it's, can be kind of this ethereal thing. And, you know, what do, what do we do? How do I meditate? Do I just sit and like, look at the Bible? Do I, do I just kind of sit and stare at the ceiling and think about it? Well, let me give you some help and at least give you a, a four-part plan for how you and I can meditate our way into a greater appreciation of these rich gospel realities. And here's the four, here are the four parts. They're easy for you to write down. Each one is just a word, and they're easy to understand. Here's first, of course, pray. Sit down this week and pray. Ask God to expand in your heart a vision for these realities of his supreme kingship and his supreme love in your life. Ask him over and over and over again. Beseech him. Make supplication to him. Cry out to him for this. And then keep crying out and keep crying out. Then pair with those prayers a thought life that is focused, as I said earlier, for even sitting and thinking on his supremacy. Find some time in your day when you can sit and before him you can think in a prayerful attitude about what it means for him to show you supreme love. What is his love? What has he done for you? How is he working in your life? And then pair with those two things, both the praying and the thinking, with your heart, a savoring. You know what this is like because you do this in physical life like I do. You sit down and maybe for you it's a steak. Maybe it's an apple pie. Maybe it's a pumpkin spice latte. Maybe it's whatever. You savor it. You take a bite. You sip it. You hold it in your mouth and you experience it. You want to know the flavor. You want to remember it. That's savoring. So take these truths and do that very thing in your heart. Savor them. And then fourth, lastly, build. Build your life on these truths. Like Paul, like John, like Jesus, like his Holy Spirit, like the Word of God, infuse these truths into every area of your life you possibly can. Talk to people about his supreme love. Other believers, talk to Christians about his supreme love. Read books about his supreme love. Live your life as an expression of his supreme love. Drive out anxieties and worries and fears and frustrations and conflicts with his supreme love. Build your life. And then finally, we come to this ultimate conclusion. And that is that Jesus deserves, because he is supreme king and because he is supreme in love, he deserves supreme glory. 
That is why John says last in our text, to him who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood and made us into a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here at the end of our text this morning, we read another soul-stirring reality of God's ultimate worth. They are the kinds of things that I admit I gloss over many times. They are too routine. They're just too normal to us now. We want to recapture this vision of their depth and their, their glory, their richness, and it is this. To him be glory. What is glory? Glory is splendor. It is brightness like the sun. It is to ascribe to God what is already his, that he is splendid. He is brilliant. He is glory. But not only that, you read what else he says, and the dominion. This is a word, kratos, which actually is a word that's used in Greek mythology for a Greek god who is mighty in power. He has rightful control and reign. This is why we refer to Jesus as king of kings, big K, little K. He is the king of kings. He is kratos. Kratos, that Greek god, listened to the siblings that he had, Nike, victory, Baia, force, Zelus, glory. All of these things work together, not in some mythology, but in the real God of the universe, and he has dominion. But if that wasn't enough, John goes on and he tells you what his dominion is like. It is forever and ever, so be it. While we know and we focus on our calling to glorify God, that's what we want to be doing in our lives. This text and many others bring out to us a reality that we must not overlook as we come to a close and we seek to take these truths into our lives into the coming weeks. And it is that his glory and his dominion in one sense has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's not as though we give him glory or we ascribe to him dominion because he needs us to. It is his with or without us. This is who he is. And that's why to him be glory and dominion forevermore because it is his. The great C.S. Lewis once said this, a man can no more diminish God's glory or dominion by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. His glory and his dominion belongs to, us, to him with or without us. So we must ask that question, so what then? This is our God. His glory and his dominion then, what do they have to do with us? For those who know him, for those who belong to him, they are our comfort. They're what we look to to find our identity. They are our comfort and our honor. His dominion ensures 
the control of our lives. And his glory or beauty ensures the ultimate satisfaction of our hearts. What is so amazing about all of this is that you know anything about it. He has no reason. He has no requirement to show us any of this. And yet, what has he done for us? It brings, us into, brings it into clear reality, clear vision for us. John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Our last use of this text this morning then is simply to rest in Christ by gazing at his beauty in his word and living under the assurance of his dominion even when everything seems to be falling apart. This is what it means for us to belong to a supreme king who works supreme love and deserves supreme glory. It's our joy this morning that we can exalt our king in what he has done for us, knowing that he has released us from our sins by his blood, by the shedding of his blood, by the breaking of his body on the cross to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do that this morning. Actually, this morning, we're going to be passing those same uh, little containers of, of the juice and the bread, but we'll be passing them around rather than coming up front. And so uh, as those who will distribute that prepare, I'm going to pray for us, and I'd like for you to bow your hearts with me as well, that you too would be asking God to show you again this incredible love his ultimate supremacy, and his kingship in your life that is so beautiful as a God who shows us grace and gives us peace. And we celebrate that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. After we pray, we will take the Lord's Supper. And if you are with us this morning and you're a believer in Christ, we welcome you to celebrate with us. If you are not a Christian, if you're unsure of whether you belong to Christ, then you would not need to take this. It would not be right for you to but rather that you would pray and ask God to give you everything that you need so that you could believe in him and that then you could join us rightly by taking the Lord's Supper together, celebrating what he has done for you. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning because of your great grace and peace that you have bestowed on us in Christ. Oh God, we pray that you would take these important truths of your word and that you would fill our hearts with them that you would expand our vision of you as we walk through this incredible book of your Bible and that we would understand better just what it means to have you and know you as king. God, we pray that everything about us would be changed by your kingship, that we would have a new vision for our world, for our lives, for what we think, what we do, how we feel, what we want. We pray this morning as we take this Lord's Supper, that it would be an encouragement to us, it would strengthen our souls and be a means of grace to us to remind us again of just how good you have been to us, the supreme love that you have shown. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.